Good morning. My name is Terry Plath, and I am one of the elders here at uh, Christ Redeemer Church. Uh, my wife, Marin, and our four kids, we've been a, a part of this body since, uh, since it first started meeting back in 2010 at Central Park here in Woodbury. Uh, we've been very blessed to be a part of this, this body, and um, we, we really love Christ Redeemer Church, and that is to say we love all of you because we all know that the church is not the building, it's not the institution, it is the people, uh, the body of Christ, and we're, we're very pleased to, to be a part of this. And I'm also very honored and uh, blessed to be able to speak to you this morning. Uh, as uh, as uh, Doug has just talked about, Pastors Thomas and Brett are in India, so while they're gone, there are a few of us that are uh, pinch hitting, and uh, so I'm, I'm very excited to share the Word of God with you all this morning. Please turn, if you would, to chapter 21 of, of John, of the book of John in your Bibles. We're going to read verses 1 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, um, our ushers do have one. Greg is in the back, and we'd be happy to, to share one with you, to let you have it. Um, Just feel free to raise your hand. We're going to pray here, so if you want to raise your hand during the prayer, uh, Greg can drop one off uh, if you're in need of a Bible. So let's uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have not left us without instruction in in this life, Lord. You've left us with your word, the Bible. Uh, Lord, it's a precious uh, book, and not only is it um, historically uh, accurate, Lord, and, and and a great resource for historical fact, but it is powerful, it is living, it is active, it has spiritual effect on our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that the word would go out today and that it would have effect on hearts, on my heart, on the hearts of those listening here, Lord. Um, we pray that, that uh, our hearts would be tender and our ears would be open. We pray that Satan would not try to steal uh, this word from our hearts, uh, but that it would go deep, Lord, the seeds would go deep, and that would would uh, root up in, in deeper faith and greater faith. Uh, so just pray uh, for these words, Lord, and pray that they would be your words and not mine. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's turn to John. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, have you any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now uh, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw the charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said this the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So before I uh, dive into the, the message here, I just wanted to lay out kind of the way that I've been thinking about this message. We'll spend a little bit of time in the setting and the background of, of how this all took place, where it all took place. But then there are three main principles that I think God is trying to communicate to us today through this text. Uh, one is that we all are like Peter. The second is that we all need to be restored like Peter was restored by Jesus. And the third is that Jesus is the great restorer, and he's the only restorer. And I'll hit on those points again when we come to them in the message. So we all are like Peter. We all need to be restored, and Jesus is the great restorer. So let's talk about the setting. In your mind's eye, you know, picture uh, where we're at. We're at the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. Likely, we stand on the shore on the north end of the sea outside the town of Bethsaida. Uh, Bethsaida was the home to Simon Peter and to his brother Andrew and also to Philip, so three of the 12 disciples came from this town. The week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, better known as Passover, had now passed. It's been about 10 days since Jesus rose from the grave uh, and showed himself first to Mary and then to the, the disciples that were huddled in the, in the upper room. Uh, it's been several days, at least, uh, since Jesus revealed himself to the disciples a second time, and you may recall showed himself to Thomas, who had not been there the first time and was having a hard time believing that Jesus truly was alive in the body. And Jesus came and showed himself very kindly to Thomas, let him feel the scars in his hands and his side. So somewhere between there and their journey from Jerusalem up to the north side of the Sea of Galilee, probably 10 days, two weeks have passed since Jesus arose. Uh, Jesus' ascension is a couple weeks off in the future, and we know that Pentecost is probably about a month in, into the future. So we're in this kind of awkward in-between time for these disciples. We don't know for certain what Peter and the other disciples were thinking. I would hazard to guess that they were feeling a little bit confused. They'd, they'd seen Jesus twice here in the last 10 days, but things were different now. Uh, they weren't with Jesus 24-7 as they had been for going on three years time. They'd given up everything that they had to follow him and now all of a sudden they were left without him. 
So how were they to live now? I mean, what, what were they supposed to do? Do you ever feel that way? Maybe in our walk with Jesus, we feel a little bit like we don't know where to go next. I sure do. And sometimes perhaps confused about where Jesus is calling us to next. So it's, it's in this mixed bag of emotions and of joy about Jesus' resurrection, but confused about where Jesus is and what, you know, perhaps disappointment um, that Peter says, I'm going fishing. It's a phrase we hear a lot here in Minnesota, right? I'm going fishing. Nothing wrong with that phrase, but in this setting, perhaps not the best thing to be doing. He was returning to what he knew. He was returning to his old life. His strength, his comfort was found in fishing. The very thing that Jesus had called him away from is an occupation. He called him from being a fisher of fish to be a fisher of men. He was going back to the fish. And it would appear that this was his own decision. Maybe hadn't consulted God on it, hadn't consulted Jesus on it. It was on his own strength, perhaps, which was a common theme in the life of Peter. I mean, he did a lot of these types of things, right? A little bit rash, um, but a common theme of Peter. So Peter, what a, what a guy he was. He lived life in a big way. Zealous, he was unfiltered, a natural leader among the disciples. He made bold claims, took bold steps in his life. Some of those were very good, and some of those were not so good. He had to learn that time and time again, living on his own strength was not, and God-given talents was not going to yield any lasting fruit. That's a lesson that I can relate to. He's, here's the guy that walked on water to reach Jesus, but just as he was getting there, he took his eyes off the Savior, put him on the waves, and down he went. He pulled his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of Herod, in the Garden of Eden, or Garden of Gethsemane, I'm sorry, uh, the night that Jesus was, was betrayed, only to be rebuked by Jesus and be told to put away his sword because he was actually getting in the way of God's will. He boldly and pridefully claimed that he, among all the disciples, would surely be the one to stand with Jesus till the end. Even if he had to die with Jesus, he would stay with him to the end. We see that four times in the New Testament, uh, the same story, but, but uh, repeated in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 13. So um, it was clearly something that he had uh, established. But instead, he denied Jesus three times, as we know. Uh, before the night of Jesus' trial was even over. Now back to, the, back to the passage. Verse 3 tells us that after fishing all night, they caught nothing. Dawn begins to break. It's probably still a little bit dark. 100 yards, you know, is a pretty decent distance, the end of a football field. They hear a man call out, ask the disciples whether they've caught anything. They say no. Tells them to drop the nets on the right side of the boat. Jackpot, right? Fish. They can't even pull it in. Huge catch. Sound familiar? I'm sure it, it, it felt very familiar to them because in Luke 5, early on in their following, the same thing happened where they hadn't caught fish and Jesus, when they were first coming to know him, told them to drop the, the nets on the other side. And uh, yeah, so it's from this that John is the first to recognize and say to Peter, it's the Lord. And that's all Peter needs to spring into action, right? He's out of the boat. Throw on that fishing coat, whatever he's got, He's out of the boat and is trying his, you know, his hardest to get to Jesus first. I'd probably guess that this is done out of sheer love for Jesus. I mean, uh, no doubt that that's what he was thinking. 
But in doing so, it leaves the other disciples left in the boat to have to haul the fish in themselves. So there's a little bit of selfishness in this too, which is kind of interesting, uh, especially in light of some of the things that, that Peter has said in the past. Well, finally they all get to shore and find that Jesus has a nice warm charcoal fire waiting for them and a few fish cooking on it. Uh, he's prepared them a meal. And I just find this really comforting. I mean, this is, this is our Lord Jesus He's here for a very spiritual purpose, but his first thing to do is to meet the physical needs of these, of these men and to do it in a very gracious way. That's the way Jesus is. And it's interesting to note that the charcoal fire that Jesus has prepared, the, the Greek word for that is anthrica. And it's used one other time in the Bible, and that's in, in, in John 18, 18, where in, in a familiar scene, Peter's in the temple court. Jesus is being held uh, for trial, and uh, someone asks Peter if he's not one of Jesus' disciples, and for the first time, Jesus, uh, uh, P- uh, Peter denies Jesus as his Savior. So, interesting symbolism, that, that same fire, same reference to the fire would be brought around again in this setting as Jesus is here to restore Peter. Uh, so, Jesus asks the disciples to bring some more fish. There's not enough for them all to eat, so Simon Peter, man of action, goes and gets that net, Paul's the entire net out himself, uh, full of fish, 153 big fish. And uh, he feeds the, Jesus feeds the hungry disciples, and they have sweet, reunited fellowship together. Uh, you know, it's, it's not ironic that it was over a meal that they reunite. Um, the great uh, Bible commentator Matthew Henry notes the fa- that the fact that Jesus prepared and provided a meal for the disciples indicates that the lordship of Jesus includes fellowship with him and other believers. Yes, eating together is a part of us living out the lordship of Christ in our lives. Fellowship is key. And uh, we believe that uh, here at CRC. And we encourage all of you to be a part of a regular act of participation in the fellowship with other believers. Whether it's a small group or a life group, we want people to get involved and to be actively involved in these groups with fellow believers. If you want to... uh, experience Christ in all his fullness, you need to be in fellowship. But Jesus hasn't yet finished his work. Uh, Clearly, he has the purpose in this encounter, and that was to restore Peter. You may remember that back in Luke 22, verses 31 to 34, Jesus foretold Peter's denial of him, saying, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you, uh, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus then goes on to tell Peter that in spite of Peter's objections to the contrary, that Peter will deny Jesus three times. So let's stop at that passage for a minute because I think this is a really important uh, passage for us to, uh, to remember for our own lives. First off, Satan demanded to have Peter to sift him like wheat And we know that Satan is still at work today wanting to sift us believers like wheat. Peter himself in 1 Peter 5.8 warns us that we should be sober and watchful for our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But does being sober and watchful alone stop the roaring lion, stop the prowling enemy? No. No. We know who does. Jesus does, right? 
And Jesus, just as he did for Peter, he can do it for us. And I love this. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. And Peter's faith did not fail, as we well know. How powerful is it to have Jesus as our prayer partner, as our intercessor, in the prayer of, to the Father? I mean, it's very, it's ironclad, right? That's a privilege we have. That prayer support by Jesus is ours if we are trusting in him. And as Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus always, always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God. What a promise. It's a good promise. And then finally in verse 34 here of Luke 22, Jesus commands Peter that after he's turned again, so he promises Peter, you're going to turn. You're not going to stay in this uh, path of denial and sin forever. After he's turned and he's seen the error of his ways and been tempted by Satan to turn away, he is to strengthen his brothers. Jesus has returned. He's come to the shore to help Peter get to that point where he is strengthening his brothers. Because right now, calling them out to fishing isn't necessarily, I don't think, what Jesus had in mind to strengthen them. So Jesus takes Peter aside after breakfast and asks them three times, Simon, do you love me? And it's interesting to note, throughout the rest of this passage, you'll see Peter used as the reference to Peter. Jesus uses the name Simon, which is Peter's old name, right? That's the name that Peter had when Jesus first met him before he had been transformed through discipleship with Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus goes back to that, that reference. And uh, I think perhaps it's to reflect that, show Peter that he understands that Peter's thinking about going back to that old way, right? Uh, perhaps it's to challenge Peter, to convince him that Petra or Peter, which was the new name that Jesus had given him after he'd professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah, that, that perhaps uh, he needed to show himself worthy of that name again. Um, and that it was truly a justifiable name. But notice also that Jesus' question is always, do you love me? He's not asking, what have you done for me lately, Peter? He's asking, do you love me? It's, a, it's an important question for us to remember. Matthew Henry again has a powerful insight from this particular exchange. He says, Peter had already professed himself as, as a penitent person. So he, he, had, he had tears after he had denied Jesus. He had shown repentance. Uh, he'd been returned to the society of his fellow disciples. They'd, they'd brought him back into fellowship, so he wasn't walking in ongoing sin. Uh, but he was now upon his probation as a penitent. Uh, the question was not from Jesus, Simon, how much have you wept? How much have you fasted and afflicted your soul? But do you love me? And it is this that will make the other expressions of repentance acceptable. The great thing Christ looks for in people who are repentant is that their eyes are looking on him in their repentance. It's not what we do for our repentance. It's that our eyes are on on Jesus and the fruit will come. It's also interesting to note uh, that in the first question that Jesus asks, he includes a more than these. So Jesus first asks, Simon, do you love me more than these? There's a lot of debate on what the more than these means, but most people, uh, commentators, believe that it's, do you love me more than the rest of these five guys that are sitting here with you? And I think it's a little bit of a test to Peter to say, are you going to pridefully confess 
that you love me more than, you know, these guys like you did back in Luke 22 when you assured me that you wouldn't give, give up uh, till the end. Are you pridefully putting yourself above them? Do you still think you love me more than the rest of these disciples, Peter? And it's interesting that Peter, Peter's response, he didn't repeat anything around that. He just said, you know that I love you, Lord. He didn't go there. And I think it's a, it's a lesson Peter had learned about pride and about comparing himself to others. I think it's a lesson we can learn too, that we don't need to be prideful in comparing ourselves uh, to fellow believers. Eyes on Jesus. Love, love Jesus. Uh, so Jesus' response then was a gentle command of, of feed my lambs, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep. In fact, the, the third time that Jesus asks, Peter's getting a little exasperated. In fact, the text says he was grieved that Jesus had to ask him three times. Um, but I think, well, there, obviously there's symbolism in the, in the three questions, uh, corresponding to three, uh, three denials. Um, and, and Peter was deeply grieved. So um, I think Jesus here again was helping Peter to turn again. This was part of the turning process. Again, being emptied of his pride a little bit by hammering this question home three times. He was pushing Peter. And uh, this three, threefold line of questioning was restoring the three-time denying Peter and challenging that pride and self-sufficiency that Peter had once boasted in. This restoration of Peter would change him. He would never be the same again, as we all know, looking forward. Up until now, Peter had lived his life striving. He had pursued Jesus, ministry, discipleship. He was a striver. And Jesus was using his velvet hammer to break Peter of this independence, this self-dependence. So on to the first principle here. We are all like Peter, principle one. We are all like Peter. Just as a little aside, uh, when I was born, the pastor of the church that uh, my parents were members of thought for certain, the pastor thought for certain that my parents had gotten my name wrong. Uh, my name should not have been Terry, it should have been Peter. Uh, and I have no idea how a pastor of hundreds gets this conviction about a certain baby born to a certain family in the church that should be named a certain name. Because I know how much trouble my wife and I have had in coming up with our own kids' names and the evenings on the couch and debates and voting and all that goes into that. But somehow, Pastor Schramm was convinced that I should be Peter. And I, rec I recall times into my uh, fours and fives and beyond, we'd go back to our old church, we'd, we'd moved away and we'd come back and Pastor Schramm would ask, how's my Peter? And at the time, it really bothered me, I have to say. Confused me a little bit. Bothered me, though. I didn't particularly like the name Peter, and no offense to any Peters that are out in the uh, audience today. It's a fine name. But I didn't feel like I was a Peter, and I, I couldn't understand why Terry didn't work for him. Uh, but at the time, I think there, uh, now, as I reflect back, I really do believe that there was something prophetic in Pastor Schramm's choice of names. I relate to Peter more than I ever could have known. I've been a denier of Jesus. A people pleaser. Wanting to avoid any hint of persecution. I'm headstrong and I'm far too often find myself striving on my own strength. 
with my own agenda. And not trusting Jesus. I'm given to want to look back, to go back to my old comfortable ways. Rather than looking ahead and embracing the new life and new ministry that Jesus called me to. I did not do this when I was rehearsing. I don't know where this is coming from. <laughs> oh, the Holy Spirit works in mysterious ways. All right. So, on to principle number two. We all need restoration. Maybe you've never followed Jesus. You've been walking through life on your own strength, following a path that seems right, following a path that feels right, the world tells you is right. Do, the, you know, do what feels good. If it feels good, do it. But at the bottom of it all, you know it isn't right. Things aren't right. So Jesus stands at the shore, and he calls you. He wants to restore you. He's inviting you in. And it may be that you've professed to be a believer for years and you find yourself in this situation where you've been living on your own strength uh, and you need to be restored. And I would just say, come. Jesus would say, come. Uh, it may be like Peter, you've been following Jesus for years and you love Jesus and yet you're looking back wondering if going fishing isn't better and safer than moving ahead into this great unknown. Maybe Satan is trying to sift you like wheat. He's holding you down under the grip of some besetting sin that you've got in your life, and we've all got them. We are not perfect as this church, and I just want you to know that. We've all got besetting sins that we're fighting against, but we are fighting. Um, so Satan tries to hold us down under this grip of guilt and shame uh, because surely a follower of Jesus would never do something like that, right? I mean, that's what he loves to whisper into our ears. But praise Jesus, he will not allow Satan to sift you. He's praying for you. And he stands at the shore, ready to fellowship with you and restore you. And he provides this body for you, this, this group of believers, to come around you and fellowship with you and help remind you of the truth. So I, uh, just to move on, love the fact that, that Jesus ends this discussion with a prophecy about Peter's death in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to, to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of a death he was to glorify God. This isn't exactly the way you'd expect to wrap up a pep talk with somebody, right? Telling them about the death that they were certain to go to. I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? But the assurance that Jesus made at the very end of follow me implied that he was going to be there with, with Peter throughout all this, right? And I think that was a real encouragement to Peter. I think it was a real challenge to him. And uh, it was assurance uh, that he would go with him. So we all know that from here, Peter goes on to witness Jesus' ascension. Um, we, it goes on to uh, have the Holy Spirit poured out in a really amazingly powerful way on Pentecost to where he gets up in front of a crowd of thousands in Jerusalem and preaches a hard gospel message. Uh, he further restores him to preach the gospel boldly that day and many days to come. And we also know that Peter did not become perfect, right? 
I mean, we read later in Acts, late in Acts. I mean, the church has been established. It's, it's all over uh, Asia Minor now. And Peter's still struggling with, should we live under the law? Should we not? Paul has to come and confront him because Peter has this tendency to want to go and sit with the Jewish believers and not the Gentile believers and kind of act like maybe, you know, you do need to obey the law and certain tenets of the law. So he still wavered with this whole people-pleasing thing. He still wavered with conviction on some pretty basic things in his walk with Jesus. And that should be encouraging to us too. I mean, we should not expect that we're going to be perfect immediately. We should see, obviously, growth and sanctification. But it's a process, and it takes time. So stay encouraged. I believe Jesus' words for Peter apply to each one of us today. And Jesus' call to us is pretty simple. Uh, it's, it's this. It's follow me and feed my sheep. Clearly, that's going to look different for each one of us. Given our God-given uh, talents and gifts and life experience and the calling that the Lord has placed on our lives, it's interesting, one of the commentaries I read noted how John and Peter, when they were coming in, kind of took the lead in, in going to Jesus out of the boat, and the others were left to do some of the work. And that's, that's an interesting representation of the call and, and the, the, the life of ministry, that there are some of us that are called to vocational ministry, vocational ministry, like our pastors that are with Jesus, working 24-7 on this. There are some others of us that are called to haul in the nets. And that means part of our life is spent in, in the secular, everyday working world. And that's the way God designed it, that we would be salt and light. So... Um, we are called uh, to follow. We are called to believe. And we're called to care for his sheep. And just let me say here that um, Jesus doesn't just mean that the pastors are called to care for his sheep. We all are called to care for his sheep. And that means to care for each other. Back to the fellowship piece. Back to small groups, life groups. Uh, and I would also just add that Jesus didn't just mean his sheep that have been found. So those that have, been, that have professed faith are here. There's a lot of lost sheep out in the world. We know that, right? That are not of this fold, that have not heard the call of the gospel, or at least not in a timing where it's quickened their hearts and, and drawn them to faith in Jesus. So we need to be out there looking for those lost sheep as well, right? Putting out the call. That's part of all of our blessed responsibility. So he's left us to go and call them and to bring them home. Can you think of a greater honor, a greater calling than to be partnering with Jesus in the caring of his sheep? I, I, I can't. So on to point number three, and this will be a fairly short one here. Uh, Jesus is the great restorer, and he is the only restorer. Jesus is waiting to restore you perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the thousandth time. But he's there, and he's waiting, and he's calling, and he's ready to bless you. Acknowledge your sin. Repent of that sin. Then turn to him, and by his grace, allow him to do his work in you. As grieving as that might be, allow him to restore you.
Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the example of Peter. We thank you that you chose a man who's so relatable, uh, Lord, to us, uh, who has character traits that, Lord, we all can, can relate to. And Father, we, um, we just pray that uh, as, as we ponder uh, the life of Peter, ponder the restoration of Peter by you, Lord, uh, that we could apply this at some point in each of our lives, Lord, to take us a step closer to you, Lord Jesus, uh, take us a step further down the path of faith, whether that's first time or whether that's the path of sanctification. Uh, and, and Lord, that you would just uh, ha- help us to uh, follow you and to feed your sheep, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.